Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12 is where we will be turning in just a moment. This is at the very end of Paul's letter, obviously, chapter 4. And Paul is, as he usually does, lists a whole bunch of names, uh, either greet so-and-so or so-and-so greets you and gives you well wishes in the Lord. And he has already mentioned uh, several different folks, beginning back in verse 7, not so much greetings from them, but instructions. Tychicus, verse 7, is one who delivered the letter, most likely, brought the letter from Paul in Rome to the church in Colossae some thousand miles away in Asia Minor, of course. And Tychicus was a beloved brother, faithful servant, fellow slave in the Lord. Also Onesimus. We talked about Onesimus, a slave who had fled from his master Philemon from Colossae, somehow found Paul and found Christ there in Rome. And now Paul is sending him back to Philemon. We learned about in verses 10 and 11, three gentlemen that are Jewish brothers. One we wouldn't know about unless Paul had told us he has a very Greek name, Aristarchus, but Mark or John Mark, and also uh, Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, Paul says in verse 11. So having listed these different folks, five names already, plus Barnabas that he just mentions kind of uh, in relation to Mark, he now lists three Gentile names and Gentiles who give greetings to the church in Colossae, which was probably a predominantly Gentile church. If if you consider Jewish or Gentile, if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. And if you're not a Gentile, then you're Jewish, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so those who are of the circumcision or those who are of uh, of the tribe of whatever whatever tribe, but from the descendants of, of those patriarchs would be considered Jews. Here he talks about the Gentiles in verses uh, 12 and 13 and 14. One man specifically, but then two others uh, in, in a kind of a summary fashion. I'm just going to read these th- two, three verses here, beginning at verse 12, Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, or Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas, or Demas. So these three men, we see uh, this man Epaphras and Luke and Demas, and how Paul, again, associates himself with so many good workers in the gospel. Always, very rarely is he alone. Very rarely does he uh, do a ministry alone. We saw, of course, back in Athens in Acts 17, he's waiting on his brothers to join him. And so he, he goes up to the Areopagus and he starts reasoning with the philosophers and so forth. But otherwise, he is always attended by certain folks. Timothy, of course, was listed at the very beginning of this epistle as one who wrote together with Paul. Verse 1 of chapter 1 mentions Timothy, but we studied how Tychicus is, is also very reliable, very useful in God's service, especially with Paul's Paul's work. Verse 12 talks about this man Epaphras. The emphasis ought to be on the last syllable, but if I mistake it, you're, you will understand which one, who I'm talking about. It might be a shortened form, form of the name Epaphroditus, which is a different, there's another Epaphroditus who's from Philippi. Epaphras is from Colossae. He was probably the founding pastor of this church in Colossae. He is one who was in this church in Colossae, probably while Paul was three years or so ministering, kind of making his headquarters in Ephesus. Ephesus being a major city on the coast of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, of course. And 
in the course of Paul's three years. By the way, he didn't spend that long a time anywhere else except in Ephesus. Spent two years, of course, in prison in Caesarea, two years in Rome in prison, but three years ministry in Ephesus doesn't mean he was only in Ephesus. It says in Acts 19 and verse 16, I think it is, or somewhere in Acts 19, that all of Asia heard the gospel while Paul was there in Ephesus. So how do we put that together with Epaphras? That he may have heard the gospel through Paul and the ministry of Paul and the others that were with him and brought that message back into Colossae. Also, we mentioned here in these verses, the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis that were within 10, 12, 15 miles of Colossae. Um, Epaphras was probably this one who brought the gospel back, who was under the tutelage, under the discipleship of Paul, which is pretty neat, I would think, uh, under the direction, the instruction of Paul the apostle, and somehow started where it was involved with the initiation of this church in Colossae. It says about this man, he is one of your number. He's from you, just like Onesimus back in verse 9, I think it was. Onesimus, who is one of you, he's from your your citizenship or citizenry. And he, you know, I, I, I bring you his greetings. He's staying with me in, in Rome for a variety of reasons. But he came, most likely, from Colossae to find Paul in Rome because he wasn't in Ephesus anymore, local, 100 miles, 110, 20 miles away. Now he's in Rome, but Epaphras said, there's so many things going on in this church in Colossae, I need help. There's some false teachers coming in here. There's some deception going up. People are, are believing it, and they're, they're turning away from Christ and the simplicity of devotion to him. And they're looking for works. They're looking for mystical kind of experiences. They're looking for secret knowledge. They're looking for... Uh, self-abasement that's kind of, uh, you know, trying to earn your salvation through your harsh treatment of the body. And Epaphras was so concerned about that, he went to Paul and shared these things. And Paul was so concerned about it, he wrote a letter to them. And, of course, Tychicus is the one who carried it. Epaphras is mentioned just here in Colossians. He's also mentioned in Philemon. Philemon probably was written, the letter to Philemon was probably written at the same time as the letter to the church in Colossae. But he says, Paul says about him, he's one of your number. He is a slave of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ Jesus, one who is a, uh, a, a servant, but not just a servant, one who is owned and purchased by Christ Jesus himself. There is not just a voluntary um, service, which is true, we ought to voluntarily serve him, but beyond that, like Paul says, I have a stewardship entrusted me. I have been entrusted with something so great. And now uh, Epaphras is one who realizes I'm a slave, not of myself, not even of the church. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I serve him. I, he's the one that I, I seek honor from or I seek to please him. I seek to do his will, not trying to you know, even in as much as Paul is a slave also of Christ. That's probably the other than apostle. That's the term he uses of himself. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Epaphras is not just a slave of Paul. Paul would even say, imitate me, yes, as I imitate Christ. So always there's the direction back to Christ. Epaphras is serving Christ. He is a slave of God, slave of Christ himself. That's how we ought to consider ourselves too. We, lo we look back in Colossians 2 about don't let anyone take you captive through whatever stuff. Don't let anyone make you a prisoner of themselves. Here, it's not the idea of prison imprisonment. It's the idea of slavery. And it's the idea of willing, voluntary service, but also he bought us. We're his. It's not like we can do anything about it. And why would we want to do anything about it? Why would you want to serve anybody except 
Jesus. What else is there for us? We're going to see in just a moment that somebody did love something other than Jesus and that didn't end up very well with him. But Paul and and uh, Epaphras and others are recognizing, I'm a slave of God. I serve him. The, this idea of slavery is maybe not so popular in our day, but it is something that uh, we've seen throughout Colossians, talking about uh, this slave or that slave and slavery even. There's no, there's no such thing as a slave or free man anymore in Christ. But then he talks about, hey, slaves, you do this, and masters, you do this. And so there, there is... When you come to Christ, there's no distinction. But in terms of roles and functions in society, yes, we still maintain our, our identity and we serve in those ways. We serve Christ, of course, always. But slavery is something that we ought to consider ourselves as slaves, not so much of each other, but of God. We, we offer ourselves to God. He is the one that has bought us. We are his there are many examples of it throughout the Gospels. Jesus talks about slaves, and, and he says even, no longer do I call you, the apostles, my slaves, but I call you my friends. So there's that, that connection. They still serve him. And in fact, we, one of the first examples of them, the apostles, after the Pentecost, they refer to themselves not as friends of Jesus, as much as that is uh, encouraging reality. We are friends of Jesus. He is our friend. But they say in Acts 4 and verse 29, after uh, a second round of, of persecution and so forth, they say, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they regarded themselves as slaves. They said, you know, they, the, the world is against us. Even the religious people, your own people are against us. But we are your slaves, O Lord. We pray that you would speak your word that we would speak your word with all confidence while you do all your, your wonders to give uh, glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Acts 16 when the demon-possessed servant girl was talking truth about Paul and Silas? She said, these men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you, what are they proclaiming? The way of salvation. Our slavery pertains especially to the function of our words and especially more particularly to the gospel presentation. We are slaves, we speak your word. Here, Acts 16, we're slaves, they speak the way to speak, proclaiming to you the way of salvation. There's another aspect of slavery, and that is what is mentioned in, in uh, Romans chapter 6 that we used to be slaves of sin. And how'd that go for you? When you were slaves of sin, was that life? Was that just thrilling and satisfying? No, it was deceptive, it was destructive, it was uh, debilitating, it was yuck. No, no longer present your bodies as slaves to sin, but now slaves unto God for righteousness. That slavery is so different. Being a slave to sin is death. It is despicable. It is wickedness. And yet he says, don't go on presenting your members as slaves to sin. Why are you still doing this? Why are you still walking in, in foolishness and wickedness against God when life, real life, is in Christ himself? Serve him. Don't become a slave of men. Be a slave of Christ. Did you know Christ became a slave? You know, Christ emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. Christ himself humbled himself to the point, and it goes on in that context, to the point of death, not just any kind of death like heart attack or old age or, or stoning or, or drowning like the apostles, like the disciples were concerned about. Lord, save us. Don't you know we're drowning? He died on a cross, the cruelest, most wicked death of a criminal. Nobody dies on the cross except criminals, according to the state anyway. And 
Jesus became sin for us. He became a slave. He took the form of a slave. And so should we do any better than what our Lord has done? We should be a slave of his, knowing that his mastership, his his uh, role in our lives is not, as Jesus said himself, Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you for my burden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Don't you realize you, you're looking other places for life and meaning and identity and all this? It's in Christ. Look to Christ. This is really cutting to the heart of the heresy going on Colossae because they were trying to find an identity outside of Christ. Christ is good for what he's good for, but man, there's so much more out there, so much more philosophy, so much more, these even these angels that we ought to worship, or, you know, I'm doing pretty good myself. These these works that I have, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Boy, God, you better take notice of what I'm doing. Or the, the deception that is, that is going on, you are slaves of Christ. Honor him, glorify him, draw near to him. Don't, don't be... Uh, hoodwinked or, or held captive by any folk that would lead you away from Christ himself. Paul says of this man, Epaphras, he is a slave of Christ Jesus. He knows his identity. He knows his function. He knows his role in this world. He knows that he is responsible for his words, his actions, his attitudes, his affections, his, uh, again, the way he spends his time, his money, his resources, his friendships, uh, how he plans his, his life going forward. He is a slave of Christ. How's that going for you? How are you a slave of Christ? How are you honoring that? And this man Epaphras is spoken of very highly, not just in this verse. We'll see as, as Paul goes on here, identifying this man is so concerned about not just himself, but other people. He started this church in Colossae. He's traveled a thousand miles for the sake of the church in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. He is concerned about them to the point of pain, physical pain and, and distress and, and labor in his prayers that we'll see. And so Paul says here, he says hi. And that's just a wonderful thing. The, the connection of fellowship and the identity even. He's mentioned Epaphras back in chapter 1, of course. But he mentions him here again saying, you know, he has a great burden for you. He is so concerned. He traveled all this way to see me, and, and I'm burdened for you as well. He sends you his greetings. He's, he wishes you very well. He is not angry at you. He's, you know, he, he doesn't have animosity toward people who are falling away or, or listening to the false teachers. Uh, certainly there's, there's uh, opposition to those who are teaching falsely. But for those who are aff affected by it, there's compassion, there's hope, there's concern that they would return and, and, and line themselves up under under uh, Christ's instructions. Verse 12 goes on, he says, he is always striving. You know, it's almost like whenever Paul looks across the way, he, see, he sees Epaphras in prayer. Uh, he's always striving for you. He's always agonizing. This is the word to agonize. It's, it's used uh, different uh, times in Scripture talking about this, uh, this agony. The, here's... Uh, a verbal form of it, but the noun form is used when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, with, with a deep agony, a deep uh, uh, oppression or, or uh, anxiety or anguish of soul that he pours himself out. God, Father, if there's any other way, let, let's do that one. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There's agony, this striving, a fighting that is going on here. Uh, we can see this used in other places, one another places in First Corinthians chapter 9, talking about those who agonize uh, or, well, it's, it's translated there, compete in the games. It's talking about athletes who, if you ever look, it's not the best look, right? When you, when you see kind of a, a snapshot picture of somebody who is, is trying to pole vault or, or finish in the last 10 feet of a marathon, just the 
anguish. Those aren't wedding photos, right? Those are not graduation photos. Those are, you see somebody in deep distress at the end of their strength. That's Epiphras praying for his beloved people back in Colossae. That's just amazing, the, the level of interest that he has. He strives for you in his prayers, always striving, always constant in, in these things. As Paul also is, is praying for their, their spiritual strength, their vitality, their devotion to Christ, always striving for you in his prayers. Epiphras strived also, again, on that travel. Traveling in the ancient world is not as convenient as, as, you know, we just traveled across the country and we had some challenges, but nothing like they would have faced back in the, in the first century, traveling by, by boat or by land, robbers, thieves, uh, spend a night in the open, in the open uh, sky, uh, lack of food, you have to provide everything you have, uh, uh, and coins, you didn't have the paper money, you had coins that you had to travel with and that's kind of weighty and you don't know how much do i need and then robbers come and and then you have taxes and and all these things is difficult and yet onesimus epiphras did it for the sake of the church in Colossae. he agonized in those ways but here it's spoken of he is agonizing in his prayers this is how he is approaching the throne of grace he's approaching boldly he's praying a very uh fervently for the sake of these beloved brothers back in Colossae. He is the one, this, this idea of, of striving, also, it's also talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in kind of different ways and, and other places too. But here it says, I have fought the good fight. Here is, you could translate it differently. I have agonized the good agony. You think, oh, that's kind of weird. Let's go with the fight thing. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So Paul can say, and he's, he's given the command back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, a command to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And then Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I'm done. I'm checking out, going back to God. I'm done here. But it's that kind of an intensity, a labor for himself, yes, but for the sake of the advancement of the faith and the faithful, those, both the, the truth about Jesus, but also those who trust in that gospel, that true, true message. Paul says he is always striving for you in his prayers. What is he praying? What is the content of his prayers? Well, here, part of it, anyway, is mentioned here. Maybe the, the major part of it, the major theme of, of uh, Paphros' prayers are that the church in Colossae would stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God to stand complete and fully assured. This idea of standing is is obviously the opposite of falling. You don't want to be falling into this thing or, or stumbling or or somehow faltering in the path. The Iwana, if you've been in the Iwana at all, I should prove workmen are not ashamed. I think in the song it talks about, and it's always a, a tripping up kind of thing because it steps, it says, with love unaltering and steps unfaltering. And you think, which one's faltering and which one's altering? Because you, you mistake those sometimes. It is steps unfaltering. You don't, you don't trip in the way. You don't get uh, stuck on false doctrine that sounds impressive, sounds very uh, educated, sounds mysterious, kind of sounds secret stuff. Don't. Don't fall. Stand firm. Stand firm, complete and fully assured, it says here, and all the will of God. Don't be taken aside to any other other doctrine this these same kind of words are, are already mentioned back in colossians 1 and verse 28 28 where paul says this is our this is what we do this is the work of an apostle we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present 
every man complete in Christ. That word present is the same idea here, stand. It is the idea of cause to stand through Paul's ministry, Epaphras' ministry, that these believers would be standing boldly, humbly, dependently, devotedly in Christ's presence. But he says complete here. It says has the same word here, complete and fully assured. Complete has a lot of different connotations to it, but one of the, the I guess the primary um, meaning or, or, or theme of it is maturity or, or uh, fullness has the idea of mature. How did it, well, mature, that they are uh, fully accomplished or they are finished in their faith. They're, they are, they're not somehow lacking anything. They're not deficient. They're not feeling that somehow Christ has held out on them. Somehow uh, there, there's truth out there that, that Christ didn't mention the apostles. Where's the apostles uh, teaching about this? All these false teachers, well, they aren't false teachers. These teachers over here are saying this, well, wait a minute, if it's not in line with Christ's word, then it's out of line, right? There you go, kind of simple, simple way. But to, to stand complete, to be fully assured in these things, to have no defect, have something that is entirely sound, I mean, sound doctrine, sound teaching is mentioned in Titus, uh, sound words as well, the importance that we have in responding to that, that we are complete in these things. This word and the next word that's translated fully assured also kind of give a little acknowledgement to the false teaching going on in Colossae because this word complete uh, and the other one as well can it refer to folks who are initiates or proselytes or, or somebody who's who's gone into a secret kind of religion. They have gone through an initiation ceremony. They're, they're seeking after kind of secret knowledge and so forth, and they have now become complete. And Paul says, you're not complete over there. You're complete in Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 1. You're complete in him. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And those first four verses there. Don't try to be complete in things that are not according to Christ. Don't try to be that way. Epiphras is praying that they would stand firm in what they've been taught, that they would receive it, that they would love it, they would devote themselves to it and not be taken aside to these other things. This word uh, here translated fully assured again carries that idea of completeness or or fullness or in a sense of, of a mental acknowledgement, it has the idea of giving, like it says here, full assurance of or full confidence in that truth. Don't be thinking, well, somehow... Paul or Epaphras, you've, you've kind of held up. We didn't know all these angels that we should be worshiping. We didn't know that we ought to be, you know, beating ourselves and, and restricting our food stuff and, and that we ought to be keeping festivals and Sabbath days. And we didn't, Paul, you didn't tell us this, but now we know. And Paul says, and Epaphras says, don't be concerned with those things. Christ is the answer. Christ is where it's at. Don't be led astray from the, the truth of the gospel. He comes back to the point here that they would be complete and fully assured in all the will of God. And you think, how can anybody know the will of God? How, how can this, it's so mysterious, so we, we just don't know. Well, how can Paul and Epaphras pray that they would be complete and fully assured in all the will of God if they can't know the will of God? This idea of will is kind of has two two connotations, I guess. It is that which is desired or wished for. So I, I hope, you know, I, and sometimes it's translated that way, desire, the desire of, of, of whatever uh, is, is, is being sought to be fulfilled. But it's also something that having desired it, I want it. I'm going to get it. So there's that. It's kind of two phases, I guess, of, of, uh, 
of wanting, wanting it, but then doing something about it. It's very similar to First uh, Timothy three and verse one. If any man desires the work of an overseer, it's a good thing. He desires a good thing. What is this thing about desiring a work? That's that's the word that's usually translated lust. It's a it's a it's a desire that usually leads to some action. And here it says those who desire. It's a different word than we see here in this will of God, but it's the same root idea of of a desire, something you delight in, something you want, that you're willing to do something to get it. Now, it's not sin. It's not sinful, especially when it's the will of God here. But it is something that, that is desirable. It is something that is delightful even, and that we will take action and we'll take procedure to, to obtain it. And God, of course, being sovereign, his desire he will accomplish. He is able to do it. And thankfully, all of his desires are good and holy and right and appropriate and so good for us. Give glory to God and, and good things for us. So this will of God, we, we remember from the prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's the concern for Christians, for those who follow God. We want his will to be done. There's enough of my will and being done. And a lot of times that will isn't, isn't good. I don't desire the right things or I'm, I'm, I'm purposing to accomplish things that uh, they're, not, they're not glorifying to God. They're not advancing other people's faith. They, they're not appropriate to my role as a Christian, my identity as a Christian. I want what you want, God. There's a very great danger and because many people would say, well, how can we know the will of God? How can we know what God wants from us? We ought to find out. We ought to labor for those things because in Matthew 7, the end kind of wrapping up of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a problem because I thought anybody who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, here he says, not everybody who calls me Lord is going to get into heaven. Who are those who are going to then? Those or he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. It's kind of an important thing then to know what the will of the Lord is, to know what God's will is. Jesus says in Matthew 12 and verse 50, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Not like Mary and the, and the other brothers that Jesus had, you know, physical blood relations, but those who do the will of my Father. It is possible to know God's will. Romans 12 and verse 2 says that you ought not be conformed to this world. This is true for the Colossians. This is true for the Romans. It's true for us uh, Kentuckians or whoever you're from. And it is true for everybody. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? Why? So that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. We want to be careful to do the will of God. We want to be careful to know it, of course, to choose it, because once you know the will of God, and you say, well, that's what God wants from me, I'm going elsewhere. Because I, I, I don't, finding satisfaction, delight in loving God's people, finding satisfaction and delight in, in suffering for Christ, like the apostles did back in Acts 4. Thank you, God, for, for regarding us as faithful enough to serve you in suffering and to have that opposition. We ought to delight in what God delights in. We ought to hate even what God hates. A lot of times we, we kind of blur that line. We, we, we kind of, hey, that's pretty funny over there. That joke or that story or that music or that movie that the world celebrates. Where's God in that? Now, that, all that to say is there's a lot of, of content out there. That's the word you talk about with any kind of information stuff nowadays. But we ought to filter all things according to how, is this true? Is this real? Is this something that is descriptive of the human experience? Is it true? Does it assume 
uh, maybe maybe unspokenly, but does it assume the reality of a good, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God over this world situation, over these events, these adventures and whatever? Is there a God? Is there a standard of right and wrong described in this poem or this song or this movie or this book or, the, or whatever it is? Bringing all things under the rulership, the headship, the will, the delight of God himself. That's our mandate for ourselves and for those that we have influence over or responsibility over. He says here, you may stand firm and stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. How are you going to know all the will of God? I'm, I'm struggling just with a few points of this. To know all the will of God means we need to know God's word because that's where he's revealed himself. That's where he has described the things that delight him. Like I mentioned in passing, I didn't give the reference, but it's Isaiah 66 where he says, uh, to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. So that's kind of an important thing. What does God delight in? What's his will? What is his desire? Humility, contrition, and trembling or, or fear. And you think, well, God doesn't want us to fear him. He does want us to fear him. We ought to tremble in his presence, but also have that boldness to go right into the throne of grace, right there in God's presence, not based on our own righteousness, based on what Christ has done. We can respond to him in that way. We want to be in, wrapped in all the will of God, he says, fulfilling all of his desire. This idea of all desire is mentioned different times in the Old Testament when uh, David's last words, in fact, in Second Samuel 23, he says, uh, summarizing, he says, you have done these wonderful things for my salvation and all my desire. And what I want, David says, what I want is what you want, and I want, you want what I want. We're, we're combined and unified in these things. When Solomon, David's son, is building the temple, Hiram, the king in, in, in Lebanon to the north, beautiful forests, cypress trees, and all these wonderful things. Solomon used that to build the temple. Hiram, 1 Kings 5 and verse 8, Hiram sent word to Solomon saying, I have the message which you've sent to me, and I will do, literally, all your desire, all your will, as concerning the cedar and the cypress and the timber. And so all that desire being consumed with God's desire, what he wills for our lives. I want to summarize it in this regard, and, and there's just a tremendous book that is available. Actually, I'm not sure if it's back in the, in the library now because I've mentioned it to different folks at different times. I think I put it in people's hands. We ought to get some copies of it and pass it out. It's, it's a book written by John MacArthur called Found God's Will. And essentially, he summarizes what is God's will for the Christian? Five things. God wants Christians to be saved, to be spirit-filled, to be uh, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. Suffering? Let's just go with those four, shall we? Uh, well, saved, saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. Don't you know those, those who intend to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will have opposition? And Jesus himself says, don't you realize if they hated me, they'll hate you too. There's comfort in that. God's will is that we be saved, that we come to the realization of the truth, that we are have forgiveness, an assurance of a forgiveness, not saying, well, tentatively, I, I hope that God will forgive me in that final day. You can know whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Your sins will be blotted out and separated as far as the east is from the west. He wants them to be spirit-filled. Galatians 5, of course, talks about that, that we would be uh, not 
in love with what the world offers, not giving full vent to our own fleshly desires, but what the Spirit desires, which is righteousness and holiness and truth. And we're, we're devoted to that, Spirit-filled, filled with God's Word. If you put Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly do it within you, and so forth. And Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Same idea. Letting the Word of Christ dwell within us is the same thing as, or different aspects of that, being filled with the Spirit. Be sanctified. Well, we have been sanctified. We are in Christ, and yet there is this progressive sanctification. We're becoming more like Jesus practically right now uh, in our daily lives. That relates to what we choose uh, in our in our you know, options that we have in our lives, uh, the, the values, the priorities we have in our lives, and so forth. It means also God's will for us is to be submissive. And you think, well, isn't that kind of lazy? Isn't that kind of weak? No, Christ submitted himself to the will of God the Father. You submit yourself. Remember Isaiah 66, humble, contrite, trembling at God's word. Be submissive to him. Submit one another to one another. Ephesians 5, 21, submitting to one another in fear of Christ. Wives to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Slaves to masters. Masters, slaves, children to parents. Parents to children. There's different aspects of submission. Now, we can go into that. Actually, we did in our study in Colossians 3. The last one I mentioned, suffering. Oh, man, can we just skip over that? Why do I have to suffer? Because even suffering produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Value suffering. Value the opposition, the, 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 in, the endurance that is, is built up in us in the course of that, that suffering. Paul says, Epiphras has been praying. Every time I look over, he's praying this, this prayer for you, Colossian believers, that you would do these things for God's glory. Well, good grief. Verse 13 says that, and this is, this is just wrapping it up. He says, I testify, I, I bear witness. I have personal experience with him. He and I go way back. How long has Epaphras been with Paul? We don't know. He's been with him for some time. I testify for him. I bear witness a personal experience and an endorsement of his character, of his care for you. He has a deep concern for you. This idea of concern is not just a passing, uh, oh, yeah, oh, these Colossians, they need, and then he goes off to the next thing. He has something that is almost like a, a pain in his side, like a thorn in his flesh, like Paul mentions in St. Corinthians. It is some, it's a pain. In fact, this word concern is that word pain. It's only used a couple, maybe three other times in Scripture, and that is in Revelation, talking about physical pain of, of you know, Folks that are being under the, the distress and the, the hardship of, of God's punishment in uh, Revelation 16. Yeah, it's used four times in the, in the New Testament. But it's also used in the Old Testament, this word pain or distress, trouble. It's used to describe the trouble that Joseph experienced in his father's house, you know, Jacob's house, the opposition from his brothers. The, the, in fact, he says, God has made me forget all the trouble, all my pain, and all my father's household named his firstborn son Manasseh, relates to the idea of forgetting. And also this word is used to describe the slavery of Israel in Egypt. Moses went out to his brothers and looked on all their, it's translated their hard labors. It's something that is it's anguishing, it's distressing, it is troublesome. It's used of Jesus, the Messiah in Isaiah 53, talking about him being stricken. Uh, or in anguish, uh, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. There's something that, in some respects, if it were a, an external pain, that's one thing that you, we can recover. Maybe maybe it'll be removed. Maybe sometime we'll be healed of that 
of that pain or that injury, but something that is internal, something that is it, it can't be removed because there's always that anguish, always that distress, always that deep concern for these people that they would stand in the gospel. Uh, uh, Epiphras is there with that deep concern. And it's not just for those in Colossae, it's in those neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis, those cities that are in the Lycus River Valley. Laodicea was kind of eclipsing Colossae. Colossae was a large city, but uh, the center of trade and, and even of the, the route had, had shifted a little bit to the west, and Laodicea was the up-and-coming uh, city. Just fast-forwarding, we'll end here. Fast-forwarding a few years, maybe 30, I don't know, 30 years or so later, when the churches in Asia are mentioned, John, of course, writing to the churches in Asia, we see Laodicea mentioned, we see Ephesus mentioned, we see Smyrna and Pergamum, so forth. We don't see Colossae. We don't see the church in Colossae or the church in Hierapolis. Well, you can't really argue from silence so far in that, but there, there might be an indication. Did that church in Colossae survive the false teaching going on there? Did they listen to the reproof that Paul offered so sweetly, so winsomely? Again, if you want to compare Colossians to Galatians and the different attitude and approach that Paul had in those different letters, you would see in Colossians, was so kind and so positive, always upbuilding. Very rarely do you see a negative uh, statement, you know, stop doing this. Or, I can't believe you, who bewitched you, foolish Galatians? I mean, I can you know, read that in Colossians. But the concern that Paul had, Epaphras had, had would be our concern not just as a pastoral concern, but our concern for one another, that they, we would be fully assured, that we would be steadfast, standing firm in all of God's will, that we would not be turned to the right or to the left, but standing firm in God's will, realizing that what God has revealed to us is for our good. Everything we need to know about life and godliness, we've got it in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. You want to know things? You want to know how to live your life in this age, this crooked, perverse generation? Look to Christ. Look to his word and stand firm in that. Don't be, don't be ashamed of it. Don't be uh, saying, well, I can, I can take what Jesus has, but then I need to add you know, this teacher or that great figure in history or this. No, you come and look to Christ himself and find your assurance, your identity, your conviction, your hope is all tied in with Christ. Don't look elsewhere. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you, your message is complete. It is sufficient for us. It is a revelation that is life-giving, not like the revelation of, of the world that is a death and destruction for those who, who believe it and follow after it. It is, it, is, uh, it is false, and yet your word is true from the beginning. It is established in the heavens. Your will is not some mysterious thing that we need to do extraordinary means to discover. It is revealed to us in Scripture. And it's so far revealed that we, we are very responsible for denying it and rebelling against it. We pray that each one here would be saved, that we would be spirit-filled, that we would be being sanctified and submissive and suffering and all the other things pertaining to it. Please help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You're at work in us, and with the work that you have begun in us, we, are, we know that you'll be faithful to complete, but we have a role to play as well. Please help us to remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thank you for each one who's here. Please help us to honor you and grow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.